Tonight, just give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us, your church. We ask it in Jesus' name. All the saints of God said, amen. All right, saints, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Now, I did say we're going to be slowing down a little bit as we go through this epistle. There's going to be areas where we're still going to go expositionally as much as we can, but there are going to be certain parts where we're going to have to slow down. Um, We will still do our... Um, applicational teachings on Sunday through what we cover here um, tonight. So you will get a deeper aspect of a uh, part of this, um, but let's just dive into it and see what the, the Lord has for us. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir over all things, through whom he also made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We see as the author of Hebrews begins to open it up, just God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. It's interesting that the reason this epistle of Hebrews is written, now we don't know the author. We we don't. The author is not mentioned here. Now what will happen is this. Periodically as we go through this book, you're going to hear me slip. And I'm going to say as Paul wrote, um, we don't know who the author is and you can, you know, go through different things. It's my belief that Paul did, I, you know, I don't know, I'm, I'm guessing, it's my belief he does, but I'm going to try not to do it, I'm going to always try to say the author, but if I say, when Paul wrote, please just refer to the first couple seconds of this, you know, book, and then you realize, yeah, I told you I might slip, just cut me some slack on that. But understand, what was happening is this, why, why did the author need to write this book of Hebrews? At this point, what was happening is this, is there were a lot of people, Jews, who were tempted to move away from that aspect of salvation in Christ being a free gift. And they're going to want to return to the rules and regulations and feast and law and sacrifices. They want to return to the temple. And so what they want to do is they want, yes, that salvation of God, but they want to add these other works to the work of Jesus Christ. And so what the Jew is needing to understand through this epistle is the Jewish system of worship has been superseded by Christianity. In other words, it has been superseded by the singular worship of the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. That is what we understand. Now, they worship the Father through the sacrifices and through the laws and through the temple and through all these other things. We worship the Father only through the work of Jesus Christ. All these other things aren't, you know, for us. And so what we see here as we get this, the Jewish believer is going to have to move past the foundations of that the, um, the, the epistle here of Hebrews shows are just types and shadows. And, but to them, it's a huge thing. It's, it's a foundational truth. These are Moses' instructions. These are Moses' practices, practices that their fathers have practiced for thousands of years. They've done this. 
Now what happens is the Levites are still, priests are still serving in the temple. The temple is still standing at this time. So you do have that understanding of what's going on. Um, let me share with you just one scripture. You can jot this down. Acts chapter 21, verse 20, makes this statement. And when they had heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriad of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. There was this thing, I want Jesus, but I want the law. I want Jesus, and I want these other things. And so for a Jew to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, what's going to happen is this, that the people through who the Messiah came, they're all going to reject him. Their families are going to reject him. Everyone is going to reject him. And so just think about this for a moment, that we as Gentiles, the only thing that we would have to give up is what? Idols. <laughs> all right. I can give up sin for salvation. That's a pretty easy thing to do. But what the Jew would have to do is they would have to give up all these foundational practices, all these foundational truths that they grew up on. And that's a tougher thing. Now, what we see here is this. The Hebrews is going to show Jesus' superiority over in, in chapter 1 over the prophets, because we already read um, that here God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, superior to the prophets. We're also going to see when we get in uh, verse 4, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. I want to read to you just one passage found in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19. And this is probably going to be the theme as we go through the, the book of Hebrews. It says this in Hebrews 7, 19, For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is a bringing forth of a better hope through which we draw near to God. That's what Hebrews is telling us. There is a better hope. If your hope is in the law, there's a better one. If your hope is in the prophets, there's a better one. If your hope is in the temple, it's a better one. If your hope is in the sacrifice, there's a better one. What we see here is this. That the author of Hebrews is going to say that Jesus is better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than um, Aaron. He's better than the ritual of Judaism. He's better than all the Old Testament saints combined. Jesus is better. He's the better hope. And I think it's interesting that these are all shadows and they're all types. And so Jesus here, it's going to be said of him that, yeah, he's better than the angels. He's a better hope. He's a better testament. There's better promises, better sacrifices, and a better and enduring possession, a better country, and a better resurrection. And he's a better thing. Now, there are 11, no, there's 12 times in these, uh, 13 times in these 12 chapters that he's better, he's better, he's better. Everything is, he's just, he's just better. And I think it's so true. Now, what happens is this, to the Jew, what the author of Hebrews is trying to say is that you're not giving up something like the feast, you're not giving up the feast, you're not giving up the sacrifices, um, you're, you're, you're gaining something better. 
So it's not like, oh man, I'm giving up the law. Oh no, you're gaining something better. I'm giving up the prophets. No, you're gaining something better. I'm giving up the temple. No, you're gaining something. I'm giving up sacrifices. You're gaining something better. I'm giving up the feast. No, you're gaining something better. And it's interesting that so many of them, they want to go back. And so here's this, this portrait that we're going to be looking at as we go through the book of Hebrews. And it's simply this, Jesus is better. Now, that's not a hard thing to remember as we go through the book of Hebrews. It's as simple as that. Jesus is better. Well, it begins by opening up here in chapter 1, verse 1, God. Well, what a great way to start an epistle. Using the word theos, and that's where, where God is. Now, keep in mind that even God himself, when he was going through Moses, there in Genesis said what? In the beginning, God. And so we see Elohim was there in the beginning. Now, what's interesting is that in the book of Genesis, God, through Elohim, is mentioned 224 times. In all of the scripture, God is mentioned 4,473 times. Now, granted, I'm telling you, I didn't count my strongs. I Googled that one. I wanted to know just how it was. Well, there were some differences, and I picked the middle one. Um, and there was a couple articles that kind of pushed to this too. So 4,473 times God is mentioned. And I love it how the author of Hebrews simply says, let's just start it right off, God. God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. Now God would speak in various times and he would speak in various ways. Keep in mind that when it talks about here, various times in various ways. Now, God through various times, if you want to just take the, the, the timeline from speaking through Moses all the way to speaking through Malachi, you're looking at about 1,500 years. 1,500 years, God would at various times speak. And he'd be speaking through one of the prophets. And so God at various times throughout the 1500 years. Now he didn't speak continually through the 1500 years. But periodically within those 1500 years he would raise up a prophet and he would speak. Now it's interesting that here he would speak at various times. But it also say that he would speak in various ways. Now what does that mean? Well speaking in various ways. Now in the book of Numbers, I want to read to you a passage, Numbers chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read all the way down through verse 14. And what happens is this. You understand that the, the passage, when I begin to read it to you, this is where Miriam and Aaron, they spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. For he had married an Ethiopian woman. And so they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all the men who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both went forward. And he said, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. 
Verse 7, but not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak to him face to face. The term literally means mouth to mouth. That's intimacy. Even plainly, not in dark images. And when he sees the form of the Lord, why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So the anger of the Lord was aroused against him, and he departed. And when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous, white as snow. And then Aaron turned towards Miriam, and there she was, a leper. And Aaron said to Moses, O oh my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us, which we have done foolishly, and in which we have sinned. Please do not let her be as one dead, whose flesh is half consumed when he comes out of his mother's womb. So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, Please heal her, O God, I pray. And the Lord said to Moses, if her father had spit in her face, she would not be shamed seven days, but let her be shut out of the camp seven days, and afterwards she may be received again. So we see here that God does speak, and he speaks in various ways. Usually, as it says here, he speaks either in a vision or sometimes in a dream, but to certain prophets, God will speak face to face. Another passage I want to share with you found in Deuteronomy chapter 5. I'm going to start reading in verse 22. I'm going to read all the way through verse 27. And I'm going to jump over to verse 31. But in Deuteronomy 5, beginning in verse 22, it says, These words of the Lord spoke to all your assembly. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly in the mountain from the midst of the fire. The cloud and the thick darkness and the loud voice and he added no more, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone, and he gave them to me. And so it was when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, that you came near to me and all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, surely the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we've heard his voice from the midst of the fire, and we've seen this day that God speaks with man, yet he still lives. Now, therefore, why should we die? This great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord God anymore, then we shall die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and yet lived? You go near and hear all that the Lord our God may say and tell us all that the Lord our God says to you and we will hear it and do it. Now in verse 31 it says, But as for you, stand here by me and I will speak to you all the commandments, the statutes and the judgments which you shall teach them and that they may observe them in the land which I am giving them to possess. So we see here that what's happening is God was going to speak to Moses. The people didn't want to hear it for themselves. You speak to Moses, Moses, then you speak to us. And so we see that Moses would actually, he would hear from God and speak to God face to face. And then Moses would write down the commandments or he would share what God was saying. So that's one of the ways that God, in the various ways that he would speak to men. Now, you're familiar with the prophet Isaiah. Now, when Isaiah, amazingly, he began his epistles by simply declaring so many woes to so many people, it makes a statement in Isaiah 1, verse 18, where 
through the Lord, he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. So we see here that God says, I want you to come. I want you to reason. I want to dialogue with you. I want to teach you. I want to talk to you. But uniquely when Isaiah, although he began with the woes to the nations, he comes into chapter 6 and all of a sudden he gets another whole aspect of God. And that's where in the year that King Uzziah died, he sees the Lord high and lifted up where he was sitting on the throne and the, the train of his robe filled the temple. And above it stood the seraphim. Each one had the six wings and with two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet and with two he flew. And one cried out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Now, eventually what's going to happen is this. Isaiah is going to make this statement where he says, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. So no longer is he speaking woes to everybody else. He sees the Lord, and it's now woes me. Oh, my goodness. Well, what God does is this. In verse 6, one of the seraphim flew to him, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from the altar, and he touched my mouth and says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. And I heard the voice of the Lord, who will I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. And in verse 9, the Lord would say, go and tell this people. He has a word now for Isaiah. Once Isaiah's been cleansed, once Isaiah's been there, now God can speak to Isaiah and speak through Isaiah his heart. The same thing where he would speak through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, all the way to verse 13, we see this. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. And I said, Ah, Lord God, but I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, for you shall go to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. So God would speak in various times, but he also speak in various ways and through the various prophets. And so he said, whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. He'll go on to say, and the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. Moreover, the word that the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, do you see? What do you see? And I said, I see a branch of an almond tree. And the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am ready to perform my word. And the Lord came to me a second time and said, what do you see? And he said, I see a boiling pot. And it is facing away from the north. So all of a sudden, God is going to not only speak directly to Jeremiah, but he's going to give Jeremiah visions. And as he gives Jeremiah visions, what we're seeing here is that this is God. This is how he moves. This is how he works. Now, not only will God give to Jeremiah visions, but he will allow Jeremiah to speak in different ways as well. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 13, 
What happens is this. The Lord tells Jeremiah, go and get a linen sash. And so he goes and gets this linen sashes and and he starts wearing it around and it's this beautiful sash. And and wearing a sash like for Jeremiah would be like when my granddaughters wear their Easter dresses. When they put on their Easter dresses, they are the most beautiful thing in the world. Now, my wife, just bless her heart, she has this whole whole bin of just dress-up clothes for the granddaughters. And every time they, they just, I want to dress up, I want to dress up. And they are, they, they prance and they move. And, but that's what Jeremiah does. He said, God says, go get a sash. But he tells them, I want you to take that sash that you acquired and I want you to go to the Euphrates and bury that sash. And then the sash, he says later on, I want you to go pick up that sash that's now ruined and now wear it. See, God will speak in various times through all the different prophets, but in various ways. It's not going to be just through words, but sometimes he's going to be speaking through actions. Sometimes he's going to be speaking through different things. Now, we know that Isaiah saw the Lord, and he was able to speak. Jeremiah gets a word from the Lord. Ezekiel himself, in Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak to you. And the Spirit entered me when he spoke to me, and he set me on my feet, and I heard him speak to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I'm sending you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. And they and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. For they are impotent and stubborn children, and I'm sending you to them. And you shall say, thus says the Lord your God. And as for them, whether they hear it or whether they refuse, for they are rebellious house, yet they will know that a prophet has been among them. And so Ezekiel will do that. Now, Ezekiel will also, in some crazy ways, in chapter 4, he's going to take this clay tablet. He's going to build it up as a siege wall. He's going to have all these little army men. He's going to lay on his side. He's going to have this defiled bread. He's going to shave off all his hair and his beard. These are the ways that God is going to speak to his people. And so just understand that God is going to speak in various times, and in various ways through the prophets. So not only is he going to speak through Moses, he's going to speak through um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. He's going to speak through um, Hosea, through Jonah. He's going to speak all the way through Malachi. So all of these prophets at different times, from Moses all the way to Malachi, and in various ways... He spoke to the fathers by the prophets. Now, it's important to note here, and don't just skim over this, because God, who at various times of various, God spoke to them. They became what? They became this instrument that which God was going to speak to the people. So the prophets spoke forth for God, or they spoke forth from God. So God would give the prophets to the words, and then they would begin to share that word. So understand that God, who at various times and in various ways spoke, God speaks. And I think you and I need to be in awe of this. You have to understand that we would have absolutely no revelation of God that we could in any way make it solid. 
I mean, the, the word declares, the heaven declares the glory of God, right? So we know the heavens declare the glory. If it wasn't for the word declaring that, what would we say? Well, the heavens are amazing, and maybe they declare the glory of God, but where's the proof? See, the proof to us is what? It's the word of God. Because God says it, God speaks it, and we would literally have no understanding of a revelation of God or any aspect of his character, what he's like, what his heart is, um, how he acts, what he thinks we are. We would have no understanding of, of how he clarified himself to us, our relationship, what it was meant to be, you know, when he first created man, what it wound up being after man's sin, and everything that God had to do to get us back into a right relationship with him. We would have no understanding of this if God didn't speak it. And absolutely incredible that God desired us to really come, and like we read that passage in Isaiah, come, let us reason together. I want you to begin to understand. I think that you need to know that you guys are fallen because of what happened through Adam, and I want to bring you back into this absolutely perfect and right relationship. And this is what God seeks to do. And here's how the Lord begins to speak it. Now, Peter puts it this way. In 2 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to start reading in verse 15. I'm going to read all the way down through verse 21. But Peter makes this statement, Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always remember these things after my decease. For we did not follow cunningly devised, devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have Verse 19 of 2 Peter 1, the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day of the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this verse that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So God himself has given us his word. And, and think about this. God speaks, and you know his words because the very words he's spoken through the prophets and the very word that he has spoken through his son is this word that you hold in your lap. This is God revealing himself to us, revealing us who we are to him and the plan that he has for us. So keep in mind that here God He's at various times in various ways spoken times past to the fathers by the prophets. Keep in mind that what he does say is this. He's spoken in time past to the fathers. Now, why do I want to pause here? Why do I want to stop on this? When he says it's the fathers, in your mind and in my mind now comes one underlying solid foundational truth this letter was written to hebrews because he said it's the fathers see when, when paul would write to the gentiles he wouldn't say about the fathers 
when he would talk about the Jews, he would say, oh yeah, our fathers, our fathers, our fathers. It's always about our fathers when it comes to um, here, how God begins to speak. In Numbers chapter 20, verse um, 15, it says, how our fathers went down to Egypt. There's this beautiful psalm. I want to share a good portion of it with you. Um, Psalm 78. And what happens is this. In Psalm 78, I want to read the first eight verses, and then I'm going to just jump down to verse 12. But Psalm 78 makes a statement. I want you to see how he speaks of the fathers, the fathers, the fathers. Now it's, a, it's a contemplation of Asaph, but it says this. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth, and I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and has appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children. And the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Verse 8, and they, that they may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set his heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. And in verse 12, marvelous things he did in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt in the field of Zon. So we see over and over again that it's about the fathers. It's about the fathers. Now, Paul would do the same thing um, in the book of Acts. And what we see in chapter 13, beginning in verse 14 through 17, here's Paul. He's preaching on the Sabbath. But it says this, And when they departed from Perga, and they came to Antioch in Pisidia. And they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Now notice what Paul says in verse 16 and 17. Then Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he also brought them out of it. And so we see here that over and over, he talks about the fathers. He talks about the fathers. Now, what we see here is this. Because Paul, or because the author of Hebrews, I told you I would do that, because the author of Hebrews says God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers, we understand this to be a Hebrew, a letter to the Hebrews. One other passage I want to share with you found in John chapter 10. A couple of verses I want to read to you. I want to start reading in verse 34. I'm going to read all the way down to verse 38. But Jesus is speaking and he makes this statement. Jesus answered, said, Is it not written in your law that I said to you, you are God's? 
If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him of whom the father sanctified and sent into the world that you are blaspheming because I said I'm the son of God? If I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I am in him. So what happens is this. When God says, God who at various times in various ways spoke to the time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. And Jesus here is, is in, in John chapter 10 saying, listen, why, why are you saying here that you know, do you say to him, again in John 10, 36, of whom the Father sanctified and said in the world, you are blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God. But if you do not do the, if, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe me that the Father is in me and I am in him. As wonderful as these prophets were, as God spoke for 1,500 years through these prophets, and amazing as they were, keep in mind, Jesus is still better. Now, it doesn't mean that we have to tear down the prophets and make them less. We can make them amazing, but Jesus is still better. And this is something here that when we see this, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days done something better. He's spoken to us through his son, whom he appointed heir over all things, through whom he also made the worlds. And so we're seeing here, as great and as wonderful as all the prophets were, keep in mind, they were still just men who spoke for God. Jesus, this is amazing, is God speaking. Now, yes, Jesus is the Son of God, but keep in mind that Jesus himself is going to make this statement that everything that I do, every word that I speak, every action that I do is going to be God speaking through me or God moving for me. Everything that Jesus does and everything that Jesus says is a direct word from God, not, not God through a prophet, but God himself speaking and so as Jesus is the Son of God, we understand he's also God who's come in the flesh. And we're getting a direct word from God, not a third person word, but a direct word from the Lord. And so as we see here now, I want to take you to a passage in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, here's what Jesus says in verses 46 through 50. Jesus makes this statement. John 12, beginning verse 46, I've come into the, as light into the world. That whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And he who rejects me does not re and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in that last day. For I, this is verse 49 of John 12, have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. 
And I know that his commandment is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Now, I love this. Jesus is God, but he's speaking forth. Every single word is God. It's a direction from God. He, he literally, he doesn't say anything that isn't God-breathed. He doesn't say anything that isn't God-directed. And this is amazing. Like the prophets would say a lot of things, but eventually would come what? Jesus and every single word that he would say would be a word from the Lord. And so we begin to see here that superiority of Jesus over the prophets. But not only do the words, because the prophets would speak in various, you know, by visions and by dreams, and they'd also do crazy things like bury sashes and build, you know, siege walls out of clay tablets and shave off their hair and, you know, light it on fire and everything. But Jesus himself would also have actions. The greatest action, of course, jot it down, is going to be the action on the cross. But before that, we see in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 25 through verse 29, it makes this statement. Then they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. And many things, I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. And they did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. And Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, now here's the crucifixion, then you will know that I am, the New King James has he, but it's in italics, which means it's not in the original. He'll say, you will know that I am, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things, and he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things which please him. See, every action that Jesus does is a declaration of the Father. When he would open the eyes of the blind and when he would allow the, the lame to walk and when he would forgive the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery, he would do what? It would be the will and the work of the Father. Now, here's the problem. Have you ever noticed how some people say that there's a difference? There's a God of the Old Testament who's really mean and wants to kill everybody. And then there's Jesus who is just loving and wants to save everybody. Well, understand that Jesus is what? Everything he did was what? Of the Father. Everything he spoke was of the Father. So it's not like there's a difference in the two where the Father is all this angry dad and Jesus is this nice little loving son that wants to make everything right. And he's able to say, okay, dad, ease up now. Don't get too angry now. I'll, I'll take care of this. But here's the problem with you know, people thinking that the, the Father of the Old Testament, Jesus in the New Testament, everything he did was of the heart of the Father. Everything he did was of, of you know, to, to want to speak forth what God declared. So when we take a look at what Jesus is and how everything that he says is from the Father, remember when he was there in John chapter 4 speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well? He made this statement. She makes a statement in verse 25 of John 4. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. 
So she's basically saying, wow, God in various times and various ways, spoken times past to the fathers by the prophet, has in these last days, will speak to us through the Messiah. He's going to tell us all things. And so this is what we begin to understand here. So what happens is this. What prophets, what of all the amazing prophets could say this? No one could say that God in these last days has spoken to us by his son. There is not one prophet who has been appointed the heir of all things. There is not one prophet through whom he also made the worlds. Jesus did these things. Jesus is these things. So when you take a look at the prophets, you don't have to cut them down, but understand as great and amazing as they are, Jesus is better. Remember there at the transfiguration, there was Jesus and then Moses and Elijah and Peter has this great idea. Let's build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And most scholars would declare, and I would agree with them, that Peter is putting the, the law and the prophets on an equal footing with Jesus. Three tabernacles. But let's make three. One for you first, Jesus. We'll make yours. And then we'll make for the law and the prophets. And while he was still speaking, Matthew tells us, while Peter was about to say something more profound, and of course Luke says that he said these words because he didn't know what to say. And, and so as he's saying these words in the midst of the father says, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. Hear him. It's not about the law anymore. It's not about the prophets. They were all appointed to Jesus. Jesus, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. And I think this is where the, the whole key is, is Jesus Christ. And as we see here, he says, not only has he spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, that everything belongs to him. Now, as amazing as these prophets are, who can say that about themselves? Could Isaiah say, wow, everything's mine? Could, could Jeremiah say, wow, I made the worlds? None of them could say this. None of them could stand up to that. So as amazing as the prophetic word is, Jesus himself, what he does is this. He confirms all their words. And prophets can speak. And there are going to be times where they may not want to say what they say. And that's happened before if you're familiar with the prophet Balaam. Balaam himself, Balaam himself literally was going to go and prophesy against Israel. And he was about to go and prophesy. God did something amazing. He spoke through the prophet Eeyore. He spoke through a donkey. And, and so much so that here, Balaam doesn't isn't alert to say, wow, here's an angel, he's about to kill me. But here this, this donkey starts, haven't I been a good donkey? Why are you beating me? What's going on? And, and Balaam, rather than like, oh my goodness, my donkey's talking, he's so enraged, he begins to argue with the donkey. Well, you crushed my leg and you did this and you turned off to the side and all of a sudden God opens his eyes, he sees the angel. That's a sad thing when a prophet loses an argument with a donkey. And yet he did. And then he had a discussion with the angel. And he was about to lose that discussion as well. So when he goes and prophesies and wants to prophesy against Israel, 
The angel says, you only better say what God calls you to say. And this is the thing that the prophets, although sometimes they may not want to say what they say, they, they had to. The, the, the word of God just burned in their hearts so they couldn't but speak these things. Now, they sometimes had to be compelled to speak, but not Jesus Christ. That's all he wanted to do is say, Father, I want to speak your words to these people. I want to speak your love. This is the heart of God. And so Jesus here, he, in the last days, which is where, you know, from the time of Jesus to now, that's all the last days. It's not like he didn't speak through the Gospels. He spoke through the Gospels. Once his son came, once this new covenant, once the New Testament came, that is the beginning of the last days. He spoke to us through his son, whom he appointed heir over all things. In other words, he's going to inherit all things. The Father's given all things over to the Son, and through whom he also made the worlds. Now, this is incredible that here Jesus Christ He's created everything. He is the active force through which everything leapt into existence. Now, which of the prophets could say, oh, yeah, yeah, I made a star. <laughs> really? You couldn't even say you made a rock. Keep in mind that we can make nothing except what? Except out of what God has already made. We can repurpose something but we can't make something. You can't make a rock. You can't make a tree. You can plant a tree that God has already established through the DNA of the seed. You can have it grow and you can cut it down. And you can make something. We can't make anything. All we can do, and you know, for the, 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 um, those who are like the hippies, we can repurpose. We repurpose everything that God has already made. And so we can recreate from it, but we can't make it. This is the son. And, and just keep in mind how he is so much better than the prophets. Now it goes on in verse 3. It says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, this is incredible because Jesus here, it says, is the brightness of his glory. What does it mean? Well, one, just think of, you know, Matthew chapter 17. That's a good way of thinking the brightness of his glory. There's another passage that you might want to be aware of. Maybe jot it down. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. And what Colossians 1 says is this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or power or things that were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And that in all things he may have the preeminence. That he can say that, that he is the greatest rank and the greatest authority over, over, over all things. Why? Because he created it. He created it. And I think it's important to make a note that he does create all things. So when it says here, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. So keep in mind, when he says I'm the express image of his person, it means that he is not the father 
but he's the reality of the Father. In other words, he's the express image of him. He's not the same person as God the Father, but literally he's the representation of the reality of the Father. There's a passage you guys are probably all familiar with found in the Gospel of John chapter 14. And what happens is this. Beginning in verse 6 all the way down to verse 11, Jesus first says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. So Jesus makes a statement. I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He says, and if you've known me, you would have known my Father. And so he says, I'm the axis, I'm the way. And from now on, he says, you do know him and you have seen him. Well, Philip, I love his honesty. He says in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. And Jesus says in verse 9, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, the Father in me, the words that I speak to you? I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. How incredible is this that Jesus is the one who says, I am. I'm the one. And so here, where it makes a statement, being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. Now, what does it mean by upholding all things by the word of his power? Well, there's a reality that what happens is this. The way that electrons and protons and everything happens, the, the scientists have no idea what actually holds the atom together. They have a term for it. It's called cosmic glue. I have a better term for it. It's called a Jesus upholding it by the word of his power. Now, Peter makes a statement in chapter in 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 9 through 14. What he says is this. There's going to be a time that Jesus stops holding it together. See, some people think at the end of the world, Jesus is going to blow everything up. No, what happens is this, he just stops holding it together. Everything that is being held is right now being held together by the will of Jesus Christ. But what Peter says in 2 Peter 3 verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for the hastening, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with a, f with a fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace without spot and blameless. So when it says here that he's upholding all things by the word of his power, it means that he is keeping them together. And how amazing is this that Jesus says, I'm the one that's keeping all things together. Now, 
as amazing as the prophets are, who could say, oh yeah, I do that too? <laughs> they, they, they don't. They were simply men who spoke for God, not God speaking. And so incredibly, what it says here in verse 3, who being the express brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he himself purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Which of the prophets say, oh yeah, I took care of your sins. No, every one of the prophets needed Jesus Christ to purge them of their sins. So as amazing as these prophets are, and I'm not saying they're bad. I'm still saying, man, these prophets, I mean, when we went through the prophets in the Old Testament, how many times did say, oh yeah, we're in the prophets again? No, I'm excited. Oh, we're in this prophets. One of my favorite prophets. You love the prophets. But they're still just men. Jesus is so far better than the prophets. But it says this, he himself purged our sins. Jesus our Christ took every one of our sins and took them away. And then he sat down at the right hand of the Father. This is incredible. When he had by himself, Jesus himself purged our sins, he sat down. After providing us with the forgiveness of our sins, and he gave this, uh, this beautiful relationship to the Father, he sits down. He sits down. What does it mean? It's finished. He sits down. It's not like, oh, wait a second, I got some more work to do. No, just sit down. It's done. It's finished. Now, Think about this for just a second. In heaven, there's a throne for Jesus to now just sit. He's not still working. I mean, he's praying, he's interceding, but he's not still working. The work is already done. The work is finished. Now think about this. There's a throne in heaven for Jesus Christ, but in the tabernacle and in the temple, think about this for just a second. There was the Holy of Holies where you had the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat on top. And then directly on this side of the veil, there in the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the holy place, you had the altar of incense. You had the table of showbread, and you had a menorah. And then you had a chair. Oh, wait, there is no chair. There's no chair in the tabernacle. There's no chair in the temple. Keep in mind that every single morning they had to do what? A sacrifice. Every single night you had to do a sacrifice. There were morning sacrifices, evening sacrifices, sacrifices. Every single year the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies only once, but then what would happen? Get ready. There's no chair. Next year you have to come in again. And the next year you have to come in again. And you come in again. And you can come in again. Keep in mind that there can never be a rest in the Israeli system of worship. You continue, and you continue, and you continue. There's never a rest. And I love the fact that here, and don't make any mistake how powerful this term is in verse 3, he sat down. He sat down. Now, we understand that there, there isn't you know, a rest in the, the, the system of worship through Judaism, but at the same time, keep in mind, that's by design. God didn't want to think, okay, men, you can do this, and now you're done. No, you do this, and you do this, and you do this. You will never, ever be done. It was by design. And as God does this by design, think about what's happening here. There's no chairs in the tabernacle, no chairs in the temple. The work is never done. And, and now we have a better thing that can never be improved on. 
How do you know? Jesus is sitting. It's done. It can't be improved upon. Now, why was there no chair in the, the tabernacle and temple? Because it could be improved upon, and Jesus did it. These are all symbols. These are types. These are things that are going on. And so as we realize here, understand that as we go through this, which of the prophets, which of the prophets can actually say this about themselves? Oh, yeah, it's all done now. <laughs> I've said what I've needed to say, and now there's nothing more ever to be said and nothing more ever to do. No, they still needed to speak. They still needed to, the, the sacrifices were still there. But I, I think it's important that you, we have to realize, be careful now, because Jesus said this in verse 2, in the last days he's spoken to us by his son. It isn't about going to the prophets anymore. It's about listening to the words of Jesus. And I think that what happens is this. I'm going to give you just three instances in our own culture, and hopefully that you'll be able to grasp this and, and hold on to it. But in our own culture, we have a system of religion that has come out of the prophet Muhammad. And Muhammad has spoken. And so Islam now launches forth from the words of the prophet. And God already said there is no other prophet. The prophets are nothing compared to Jesus Christ. So it is, it's something that we see here that if they would have heard the words of the author of Hebrews, they would have realized, I don't need to hear the words of the prophet. I need to hear the words of Jesus Christ. This is so key. The same thing in our own culture when we have like the, 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 the Mormons. The, the Mormons, they went through the prophet Joseph Smith. And everything that the Mormons said and what the angel Moroni said, you know, through the, the, the prophet... Um, Charles Taze Russell, the prophet of the Jehovah Witnesses, you know, the modern-day prophets like Jim Jones. Don't listen to the prophets. Listen to Jesus. Now, if the prophets say something that Jesus said, fine, that's good. Let them speak forth something from the word. Let them speak that forth. But be careful because God has already said all things, and the prophet says something different than that. Then you need to just kind of disregard that prophet. But we see here, this is Jesus. God spoke through him. He's now the heir of all things. He made all things. He's upholding all things. He's the very image of God, that express image. And he by himself purged our sins. And now he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's sitting at the right hand of the glory of God, which is absolutely amazing. And then verse 4 and yeah, we'll still continue. And then in verse 4, it makes this statement. And having become so much better than the angels, he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And now he says, not only is he better than the prophets, but keep in mind, he's better than the angels. So think about this. As amazing as the prophets were, Jesus was better. And I try to tell you, I'm not trying to degrade the prophets. I'm telling you they were amazing men being used by God, but Jesus is just so much better. The angels themselves are not anything to sneeze at. They're not anything to disregard. Angels are pretty amazing beings, but keep in mind, Jesus is so much better. And so as we look to this, he says, having become so much better than the angels. Now, why does he say having become so much better? If he's God, isn't he always better? Well, it's true. He is God, and he's, he has always been better. But in the sense of 
where in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, something that was lower than the angels. And then, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even at the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's become again so much better than the angels. Why? Because he humbled himself. He paid the price. It was through him and him alone as he purged us of our sins. This is the work of God. And so he's become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. At his name, every knee shall bow. At his name, every tongue shall confess. They're not going to say, oh, Michael, oh, Gabriel. No, no. As amazing as they are, it's, oh, my Jesus. His is the name. And so he has a more excellent name than they. And as far as the name, there's another name that is as, almost as powerful as Jesus Christ. And we see that in verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? Well, I'll tell you what. When, when I talk to my son-in-laws and I call them by their name. And it's like, hey, you know, I can call, I can call any one of them and, and I, I talk to them. And, and, but when I call them son, it kind of shakes them up a little bit. Um, because it's a very intimate term for me. And so here's the Lord you can say, you know, hey, Michael, hey, Michael. But when you say, oh, wow, you are my son. Now, that's amazing. Think about that. None of the angels could ever say, wow, yeah, you, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. That's a quote from Psalm 2, verse 7. And as we see this, none of the angels will ever be my son. They, they, you know, it's, it's not Michael. It's not Gabriel. It's not Moroni. He doesn't say, oh, Moroni, you're my son. No, Jesus, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again, he says in, in Samuel 7, 14, I will be like him, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So he's speaking here about the incarnation. I'm going to be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And he's speaking to not only the incarnation, where there in um, the gospel of Luke chapter 2, verse 13. Let me simply just read it to you. Luke 2, 13 makes this statement. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace and goodwill to men. The angel is saying in verse 11, There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And you're going to see him there in the swallowing clothes. He's going to be a son. And how incredible is that? And so we also see there's another passage that I want to read to you from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. And I want to read verse 27. It makes this statement, Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he will reward each one according to his works. See, we see here the Son of Man is going to come in glory with his Father, 
the glory of his father with his angels. They're his angels. Why? Because he inherited all things. They all, he created them all, and now he's been given them all. And so here we see this incredible work of the son. But it says in verse 6, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says. Now, when it talks about the firstborn, he's meaning not the very first person that's ever been born. Okay, so that would be, you know, Abel, that would be Cain, that would be the first people who've been born. But it talks about not first as in the, the, the number of the first and born, but the first in ranking. You see a lot of times that that firstborn means that you're the first in rank. So when he brings again the first in rank, the very first, the greatest of all who are born, Jesus who humbled himself to become a servant, humbled himself to the point of death, and then he says this, when he brings, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. I want to pause on this for just a second. And for those of you who know of Mormons or know of Jehovah Witnesses, they all have an understanding that Jesus is an angel. He's either an archangel, he's, he's Michael the archangel, or he's an angel, he's, he's the, the stepbrother of Lucifer, and so all these other crazy things. But they have Jesus being an angel. And here he says he's so much better than the angels. Now, I want you to see here at the end of verse 6, says, let all the angels of God worship him. Think about this for just a second. I want to pass this on to you. If Jesus was an angel... If he was an angel, it would mean that what? He was created. If he was an angel, he was created. If he's calling the angels to worship him, if he's an angel, then he would be calling the angels here to worship something of creation. If he's calling the angels to worship something that was created, he'd be telling the angels, worship an idol. Would God ever say, hey, worship an idol? No, I don't think he would. So think about that. Just in the logical sense, as the author of Hebrews begins to say how much better than he was the angel, you have to realize that he wasn't created. He was, when he says, let all the angels of God worship him, he couldn't be created because if he was created, he'd be he's saying all the angels go to idol worship. And to the angels he says, he says in verse 7, who makes his angels spirits, and his minister's flame of fire, quoting from Psalm 104, verse 4. To the angels, he said, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. In other words, that the angels are not bad. They're amazing. They're, they're, they're servants. And we see over and over again how God uses angels to be servants. I mean, think about this. Angels brought out Lot and his family from Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And they're in Genesis chapter 19. Not only that, but angel brought Peter out of prison, Acts chapter 12. So angels are constantly doing that. The angels protected Daniel there in the lion's den, Daniel chapter 6. The angel came to Gideon there in, in Judges chapter 6 where he says, Oh, mighty man of valor, oh, God is going to use you. And just, just encouraged him. The angel was the one who was going to stop Balaam and stop the donkey there in Numbers chapter 22. It was the angel who had that drawn sword. Keep in mind, God uses angels for all kinds of things. He can use them to, to protect. He can use them to communicate. But he can also use them, like he did with the angel of Balaam, to discipline. 
you say one word except what God calls you to say. And the angel had that sword, you know, this is yours. Remember there in 2 Kings chapter 19 that one angel went and he wiped out 185,000 Assyrians. God said, there's not even going to be an, uh, 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 you know, uh, an arrow shot into Jerusalem. Nothing even happened. Angels are amazing. And as amazing as angels are, in the New Testament we see them announcing the birth of Jesus and there were the shepherds and you know, the, the heavenly host singing. It's, it's absolutely amazing how the, the angels are, but as amazing as the angels are, and they're not to be taken lightly or for granted, Jesus is so much better. And so we see here, he says, yeah, you are ministers, you're ministers of a flame of fire, but to the Son, he says, oh, verse 8, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Here, absolutely amazingly, God calls the Father, no, God the Father calls the Son God. Think about this for a second. Now, now that ought to shake up a few Jehovah Witnesses. You, you think about this. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Notice verse 8. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He says, you have an everlasting throne. And a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, <laughs> your God, has anointed you. He calls him God. He says, and I've given you this special anointing. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions, speaking of Psalm 45. And Lord, in the beginning, you, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Now, if you're here for this Sunday Psalm reading in Psalm 102, guess what you're going to be reading? You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. We see here that he's the creator of all things. And it says in verse 11, they will perish. Everything will be destroyed, but you remain. And they will grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will not fail. In other words, you are eternal. But to which of the angels have they ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? What does he say? Your work is done. Now think about this for just a second. To which of the angels did he ever say, sit? He hasn't said that because what does he say? Well, in verse 7, to the angels he says, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. He says, you guys are still busy. <laughs> you guys got work to do. You're not done yet. But to the son, he says, sit at my right hand. Your work is done. In verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister and for those who will inherit salvation? And so we see the angels are there to minister to God's people. And they do have a purpose. And the angels are amazing. They are so amazing. And they're not to be, you know, put down in any way. I'm not trying to put down angels. What I'm trying to tell you, as amazing as the prophets are, and amazing as their words and giving us the heart of God and keeping us in tune because of what they've said and what they've done, showing us God in his heart, Jesus is so much better. 
as amazing as these angels are, Jesus is so much better. So what are we learning? Jesus is better. It's the theme of the book. It's like no matter what you look at, whatever we're going to see, we're going to see that our Lord Jesus is so much better. And this is what he's trying to tell the Hebrews because he's saying, remember, they spoke to our fathers. They spoke to the fathers. It's, it's a book to the Hebrews because they're wanting to go back into foundational understandings. We've done this for thousands of years. Says, yeah, but you're not giving it up. You know, you're, you're, you're not doing it. You're not holding on to it like you did, but you're not giving up. You're gaining something so much better. So much better. It would be like this. Let's just say that you have an engagement and you don't want to lose a fiance, but God says, listen, you're not losing a fiance. You're gaining a wife. So much better. And so we see here, it's at heart, it's something so much better and so much better. And so not degrading prophets, not degrading angels, but exalting Jesus Christ to a position that is what? Just his due. Just his due. Who being the form of God, did not even consider robbery to be equal with God. God, in that throne of majesty, the son says, have a seat, you're done. There's nothing else that needs to be accomplished. Don't go back into the regulations and the rules and the laws and the feasts and, and everything else that has to do with Judaism. And that was the problem with them. They, they saw these things there, and Jesus, God is trying to say through the author of Hebrews, let it go. You're not, you're not losing this. You're gaining something so much better. And if you hold on to this, you won't have enough grip to hold on to what's really important. And that is the worship of the Father through the Son. Amen? Well, Father, we do thank you for this chapter. And we thank you, Lord, for the time. And just um, as you would use, Lord, this book to instruct us to the reality that we are going to be leaving here in awe of you, Jesus. You are so much better. And we, we acknowledge that. We, we stand on that. And Lord, we don't fully understand because we've, we've just left carnality. We just left idolatry. We didn't leave these foundational you know, things, these shadows and types, the things that our, our parents had been practicing. We, we just left sin and came to you. And we understand their struggle. But Lord, what they would gain is so much more. So as, as you call them away from it, help us not to go back to that too. Help us not to look to, to feasts and, and days and Sabbaths and, and, you know, sacrifices and temples and the law. It's, it's, Lord, it's you now. It's you. You will write your law, that, that law loving you and loving people on our hearts. That's, that's the law. And in those things, everything else is covered. You're just going to write, you're going to help our hearts to open up into love to love you and to love others. Do that work. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done. Thank you for the redemption. Thank you, Lord, for just being better. And there's nothing else we have to pursue. It's only you. And so we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.